Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, Jim. Hey, Paul. How you doing? Doing good. Doing great. Well, good deal. Good deal. You know travels this week? I uh, ended up in Florida. In Florida? <laughs> <laughs> Some friends have been asking me to come down and visit for three years. I finally said, if not now, when? Were you on the coast? Yeah, over on the Vero Beach, about an hour south of Cocoa Beach and all that space stuff. Hey, good to see you or hear you, Brent. Everything going well? Yes, everything's going well. Jonathan, everything good? Yeah, I had to go get, I left my earbuds. Oh, okay. So now I can hear you. Well, hopefully I'll say something worth hearing. <laughs> hey, guys. Hey, good to see you. Good to see everybody. All right, I know you're. I know you're. You're under the weather with the living in the tropics in paradise has its downside. You've got some kind of pollen or hay fever. I think so. The pollen out here is. You can just everything's covered in a yellow soot all over everything. So it's. They said it wasn't very. The winter wasn't cold enough. So there's lots of bugs and there's lots of pollen and. It's very beautiful, but I just had to, I think I got to switch to get Claritin or something or try to change my, but I'll live. It's good to see you guys. It gives my spirit wings. All right. Well, glad you're glad you're back. All right. I wanted to go back and see what you had to say about burger and words not floating free of a sociocultural context. I guess, have you heard of Ivan Illich? He had a phrase. Uh, in talking about the the modern West as the corruption of Christianity, is that basically what you're describing? That when when we take something as close to the truth as what Hannah Arendt was saying, that unity is better than violence. Unity defeats violence in a way, mimicking what the Apostle Paul said. Mm-hmm. But it's also a corruption of what the Apostle Paul said. If I had to classify what I'm doing as a true reader of the Apostle Paul, it's not simply postmodern. What the postmodern does for us is about half the job of Christianity, and that is there is a deconstruction of the reification of culture, the reification of the political order, the reification of the law. I could have done it that way, and this is the way Derrida does it. He just says the law is the law. And Matt, you should jump in here and say, no, it's better than that. And that is that what Derrida is saying is law, it, it reduces down to a kind of tautology of power. The king is the king. In other words, I think that we're surrounded in the modern by a kind of uh, an order like that that is described by both Berger and G- Gerard. Christianity is first of all, it is a deconstruction on the order that postmodernism is a deconstruction. But we can do better than that. It's not simply a deconstruction. It's also the founding of a new community. It's the founding of a different 
social order, a sociocultural order. Uh, it's a founding of a community of love. It's a reordering of our understanding of the genealogy of power. You know, this is all that Michel Foucault did. He just talked about power and the way that power functions in human institutions. You know, whether you want to agree with them completely or not, I think, boy, they're hitting upon a Christian truth. This is an opportune moment for Christianity to shine forth in a way that it maybe has not up to now, because I think there is this disillusionment with the structures of power of, as we have them even the very notion of power. I don't see Hannah Arendt as a major figure in this. For, as she described herself, she's more of a political theorist, and she had some important things to say. I wouldn't put her in there as a major player. But that that may just be my lack of learning. But I just haven't done that much with her. You mentioned Derrida. Um, I just wonder if there's, when you said that postmodernism goes half the way, does half of what Christianity is supposed to be doing. Is there some sense in which that could be demonstrated, or it's obvious that this person is deconstruction, this this maybe non-Christian or Christian? I mean, maybe it's Paul Axton. Well, there's a lot Axton. of people, there's a lot of people doing this this work, you know. that's why I find Zizek so interesting. If we would just do go halfway with Christianity, we would all be atheists. Yeah. Because the first half is we need to deconstruct this order that we're describing tonight. We need to deconstruct the idolatrous religion that has subsumed Christianity, in which Christ has just become one more scapegoat. Christianity functions like a sacred canopy in American nationalism. It is a nationalistic religion. So it's just doing what religion always does. Step one is we need to reject that understanding of God, that understanding of human order. You know, even with Gerard, you understand that the, the scapegoating mechanism is in a way a kind of a good thing because it does order society and it keeps all-out violence from breaking out. Of course, it's evil and people, the whole thing is built upon ignorance, but it's an evil ignorance that is the better of two evil options. And by the way, Gerard does not have great hope for the, the future of the world because he actually thinks that without the scapegoating mechanism in play, that we're likely just to give ourselves over to all-out violence in nuclear war, you know, some sort of holocaust. I think he believes, you know, he as a Christian, he still believed in the hope of Christ, but... I get the sense that he also had a, a what you call a very practical um, mechanism, the, a third way of seeing that it's Christians behaving the way that Paul describes in Ephesians four has an influence and has a it can you know basically forestall the apocalypse at least for us to behave in ways that proclaims the truth, that reveals the truth, and that speaks the truth to our neighbors. And to, of course, do it in love. This has a big, you know, ripple effect. It's the butterfly effect. Because I, I mean, I remember Gerard saying something to the effect of, you know, he recognized the the preserving value of the scapegoat mechanism, but the fact that it was undone set us on the course for an apocalypse because it's going to get worse and better at the same time. Yeah, that and that that's Kierkegaard too. You know, 
that Kierkegaard thinks Christianity really unleashes the demonic mm -hmm. because a perverted Christianity is worse than, you know, good old-fashioned pagan religion. And I think that's what we've got. We've got a perverted Christianity. I hope that's not too dark for everybody. Never too dark. <laughs> I do dark, you know, really. <laughs> Always dark enough, never too dark. I, I, but there is light at this, and that is that that is we're naming power here in, in chapter four, that Paul describes it being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We preserve this thing. We have access to peace. And then he goes through one body, one spirit. We're all called with the hope of one calling. I think he's talking cosmic here that there is a, a cosmic unification in which God is becoming the father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I think that's coming about. That's that's the Christian hope. And then Paul goes on to describe the church and the, the building up of the church. I guess what I'm also asking about is open-endedly for us to discuss, is Gerard's mimetic theory taken up into the gospel like paul says imitate me as i imitate christ uh and as christians imitate paul imitating christ and Im you know, imitate a, a life uh, that is walking in the manner of our inherit you know the calling that we've received and the inheritance that we know spiritually to be true uh, seated with him in heavenly places and the entity being defeated us acting accordingly has a mimetic component to it that goes out into the world and affects, you know, and the, the powers um, affects our neighbors in ways that, that we maybe didn't intend or wouldn't ever pretend to expect, but it's out of our hands. I mean, we're his workmanship created for good works. It's not on us to have the, you know, have the outcome uh, just like we think it ought to be, but it's on us to respond and live well and to imitate Christ. That's what I'm asking is, you know, we think about the mimetic desire sort of uh, description culminating in the scapegoat. It's even what killed Christ, but the way Christ turned that on its head. Also, it's mimicked. I mean, I guess that's why in one, one way things are getting better. There's democracies a thing now that's better than rampant violence nation to nation, uh, people group to people group. At least it's a something we've attempted thus far but it's also not it's not the gospel it's not christian unity mm -hmm. and in christian uh, conservatives and progressives both i think are beginning to see that americans have to have some kind of unifying identity to gather around to help us uh, not split up you know hannah arendt is our guide there right as a champion for democracy but it's also severely limited because that's not ever going to be nor should it be the christ of christendom in chapter five paul is going to bring up imitation as salvation this motif and again this may sound so mundane that you'll say well of course we all know this but let me suggest that because of martin luther's reaction to works righteousness you know, this is why Luther is opposing the Anabaptists. What is it that Luther in particular didn't like about the Anabaptists? The thing that they are restoring that they came to 
that had been missing was a literal imitation of Christ. Luther felt that because that excluded the just war tradition of Christian political thinking, he could not agree with the notion of imitation being equated with salvation. Imitation of, and that's my claim here, imitation of Christ is salvation. And I think that's what Paul's saying, right, in 5.1. They imitate God. And so one of the great insights, I think this is a key insight that the Anabaptists are just going back. I think they're able to read the Sermon on the Mount. They certainly restore the notion that Jesus gives us an ethic. You understand, I hope, that for most Protestants and for many Catholics, that very simple notion that Jesus gives us the ethic that we are to follow and imitate has been lost. So we read the Sermon on the Mount. Are we really supposed to do this? Well, you can't really do this and believe in the just war tradition. You can't really do this and believe that works righteousness is mistaken. And so that's, I think, part of the, the, the notion that imitation the focus, the very fabric of the New Testament, you know, and, and it's not just, there are specific places where Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, or here in one, be imitators of God, you know, in Christ Jesus. He'll repeat this language again and again, but think of all the, you know, think of the new language of the New Testament, walking as Christ walked, being in Christ, putting on the faith of Christ, you know, this is uh, we've kind of missed, because we've missed imitation, I think we've all also misconstrued faith. We took a, talk about the faith in Christ, but we miss the idea. No, actually, it's the faith of Christ. That is, we're to imitate and participate in the faith of Christ. I think the language of being a disciple is obviously, you know, imitation. That's the way that one becomes a disciple. The familial language of the Bible, you know, what is it that a father does or a mother? Paul will use language both of mother and father. And of course, it's a, a nurturing of the child in the family that I think is also premised on imitation. The idea that, though, this very simple idea that uh, we are to imitate Christ is lost if Christ is primarily a payment for sin or a legal remedy, you know, in imputed righteousness. But the question is, what have we lost here? I'm afraid we may have lost the whole ball of wax, because if imitation is salvation for Paul, and that seems to be what he's saying, if this is the primary means of salvation, you know, he's not simply talking about a future estate. But he's talking about, about a present tense realization of putting on Christ, putting off evil. You know, in this sense, he's talking about salvation. He really, this is his theory of atonement. It is an ethic. And, you know, I, I don't think you can distinguish the ethic from the salvation. It is a theology. It's a very simple idea. The purpose, you know, if you had to say, what is the purpose behind the writing of the New Testament, beginning with the Gospels, is that the life of Christ is a model around which his teaching and Christian teaching coheres, right? He's the model that we are to imitate. 
That's Christianity, the incarnation, the life and death of, and resurrection of Christ. It's not primarily a doctrine. I'm not saying doctrine is absent. It's not primarily a set of propositions. It's not really an institution, but it is a life in which its opening message, you know, Jesus says, follow me. And that is the call to the disciples, and that will be reverberated, you know, follow me as I follow Christ, according to Paul. The reduplication of the life of Christ in the believer is the means of salvation. That's what salvation is. It's his life that is being shared. So that imitation, participation in the body of Christ is the very substance of salvation, that there is the danger we've lost this coherence. And so Paul's gospel, I think, makes sense only if we put this front and center. Once you see this, by the way, and the danger with this, it's not a danger, it's just that this is this can be endlessly illustrated. That is, there, there's very little that Paul says that doesn't depend upon this basic notion. You know, his own suffering, his imprisonment, his manner of life, they're part of and parcel. He says, uh, to Timothy, you know, and he, he will always, he would talk about Timothy. He's going to put Timothy in these churches to be one at, who is a model to these churches. He says in 1 Timothy 1.16, yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. The language of being an example, you know, Paul talked about the apostles, are a spectacle for the world. The whole point is modeling. The whole point is imitation. And, of course, the we, we understand this can go wrong, and this was my point last week with Rene Girard. While we can appreciate that he's hit upon the key notion of imitation, mimesis, I'm afraid that he's primarily said it in a negative context, in a kind of, of rivalry. I think that's true, but I think what we have to realize, oh no, that mimesis or imitation, before it's that, it, it is really a description of anthropology. I think this is a description, you know, of the creation the Im, in the image of God. This is true biblically, but this is true linguistically. It's true culturally. The way that we are humans is that we imitate. And so, you know, go. Paul is dealing with bad imitators in Corinth, but I, nearly in all of his letters, uh, where there, there's a kind of rivalry, maybe over gifts of the Spirit, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so the danger, you know, in Gerard's point, and here, here it's right in the, the verse, is that they would be a scandal. So Paul says, give no offense. Do not become a scandal to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God. And then he explains how this sort form of imitation does not become a scandal. It doesn't give rise to rivalry. I try to please everyone in everything I do not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, of the many, so that they may be saved. And then he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 
And so I think Paul understands something like what Gerard is talking about of scandal and violence and mimetic rivalry. But he says, I try to please everyone, not seeking my own advantage. In terms of Walter Wing, domination and coercion are set aside in Paul. This is Paul's mode of leadership, by the way. This is Paul's exercise of power, a very different exercise of power. And so to be saved is to imitate and commune in love. The opposite of that, Paul actually uses the word damnation, is this rivalry. You know, in Ephesians, Paul is not present. Everywhere else he can say, imitate me, but he doesn't do that here. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and sacrifice to God. So the appeal to imitate God, I think then makes sense of, you know, this is really what he's the refrain throughout Ephesians, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Who's our model? What do we do? You know, Christ is the model. We imitate him. Being members of one another entails, you know, this this kind of attitude that Paul has. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, lay aside the old self. And then I think this, this is where, you know, this being members of one another this sets us up for chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ is the model, and we're to imitate the model. This simple, basic idea, if we if we are not seeing it, I, the, the, the very fabric in which Paul is writing will be lost. Let me give you uh, uh, one example, another example. Uh, the examples could go on, you know, but here this is from Thessalonians, that he's going to talk about that you have hope in Christ through imitation, and that the spread of the gospel is through imitation. This is what he says, you also became imitators of us and the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation, always suffering, always tribulation in the imitation, but with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you, he says to the Thessalonians, became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And so the imitation of the Lord and of Paul and then of the Thessalonians is the way one enters into the power of the Holy Spirit. Here is the power of that is the alternative to the power of violence. Here is an imitation power that he equates with the conviction of the gospel. It, he equates it with the way the gospel spreads, uh, becoming imitators of Christ. And, and the apostles is the way one receives the gospel. Could it be otherwise? I mean, that's the, <laughs> I mean, how, how, how could it be anything but this? So he, he equates in Thessalonians imitation with election, that it's a sign of election, not only in word, but the power of the Holy Spirit. He 
equates imitation with taking up the suffering of Christ. Uh, and this, then, he describes, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Just as a nursing mother, he, he, this is his language. He's, taught, he's describing just as a nursing mother imparts her life to the child, we've imparted our lives to you. And so there is the familial you know, metaphor, but it's very much dependent upon we share life in this mode of imitation and participation. You yourselves know you how you ought to follow our example, Second Thessalonians, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, so that you would follow our example. And this, I think, is what it means when he says, hold to the traditions. And this is the point, you know, he connects it with writing, the writing and the verbal teaching, that it is an imitation resulting in good work. I think that's why Martin Luther doesn't like imitation, because it's directly imitation implies good works. And so tradition, the gospel, the rule of faith, I think what is meant by that, it is a living model to be imitated. And apart from imitating the life thus conveyed, there is no gospel. Now, this is too strong, but I'm going to say it. There is no gospel. There is no tradition. There is no faith apart from imitation. It sounds like you're saying the justification is not by faith alone. <laughs> I think that justification is by faith if we understand that faith is imitation. Faith is participation, right? Faith is not, as Luther thought when he's defining that, something you do in your head. I've been noticing that in different translations, you know, they can almost interchangeably use justified with something like become righteous you know like a lot of times in the septuagint in the psalm in the psalms it'll say something like you know i won't become you know no one will become righteous in your sight whereas other verses way other you know versions would say no one will be justified in your sight you know so it's like well it sounds like what you're talking about yet again is theosis that is well how do we become joined to the life of christ and it's that we actually have to become like him and that we do that not just through some sort of intellectual ascent or pursuit, but through a embodied, uh, you know, body, mind, soul, participation, uh, imitation in the flesh of the life of Christ. We, am, we are the body of Christ. We embody Christ. Uh, he embodies us, that it is participation. We are members of one another's body. And that, yeah, that entails participation and imitation. I would also think that as far as the way that Luther kind of put together works, dealing with works righteousness and stuff like that, that he, he labeled the, the, the whole Jewish enterprise as one of works righteousness. And I think... Uh, Maybe that's where Paul in the New Perspective, like E.P. Sanders, I remember reading his big 
big book on that, that they never, they never saw themselves as having to earn something. They always saw themselves in covenant relationship. And part of being in the covenant relationship meant that you would imitate God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's good. I was kind of like how N.T. Wright, Wright always put it. You know, he said, this is the family business. This is what we do. You know, this is what Israel did. This is what the faithful Israelites did. They did righteousness. They were, they became like gods. You know, this is theosis. It's like you can't become gods without actually doing the type of things that gods do. You know, you know, in a Christian sense, what gods do are righteousness, you know, uh, love, works of love. I mean, there's just no way around it. I mean, I, I just think that, um, it's just such a misunderstanding to say that, you know, in any way that, you know, that Paul was um, sort of inveighing against good deeds. <laughs> I mean, that's what Christianity is. We do good deeds instead of evil deeds. And and in so doing, I think that we actually become, for St. Paul, we actually become righteous. We, in other words, like by imitation, we actually become something other than what we were. And that something is Christ-like, God's. I think that uh, without that concept that we become like him, that we become, we are the continuation of the incarnation. We are the body of Christ. That language is just the language of the New Testament to not see that. In other words, I'm afraid that that, that, Interp New Testament interpretation has kind of fallen apart. And I'll, let me give you an example of this from Philippians. That is, I think one of the primary verses on imitation is actually misunderstood because we've, we've brought into it, in a sense, we've lost what it means to be saved, or we've lost what has happened with Christ. And you all know the passage. It's from Philippians uh, chapter two. You know, if you had to, if you had to say, "Oh, here is a passage about imitation," this is it. But the way that it's going to commonly be read, it makes imitation impossible. Because what it's what is being said is that you know the idea of Christ's canonic self giving. What did, what is that? What is Philippians talking about? Again, what's happening in Philippians in you know in uh, in chapter three, Paul's going to again set himself up as you know imitate me. And what he means throughout, he's giving them models to imitate. And that's really the theme of the book of Philippians. And chapter two is no different. Christ is a model to imitate. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If we imagine Paul is describing movement from Christ's pre-incarnate state to the incarnation, we can't imitate this, right? 
And that's the way this is commonly read. Oh, that Paul is, is talking about that Jesus in this pre-incarnate state decided he would become incarnate. And also the language here that Paul uses the idea of he was a God-likeness in the form of God. They're very weak descriptions of Christ's deity, if that in fact is the focus. You know, if we're, Paul's not working out the, you know, two natures here. But of course, the picture is Jesus' refusal to grasp equality with God is the temptation that comes about in the incarnation, and it is the temptation that with which we all have been guilty. I mean, this is the temptation of the first couple. And so Paul's premise throughout is to encourage imitation as a means of discipleship. He says, brethren, you in join in following my example, this is chapter 3, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. The pattern's there in Christ, the pattern's there in Paul, Paul's in prison. And by the way, this would have been a great time, or this is a good time, to introduce the way that Paul works power in the relationship with Philemon and the situation with Onesimus. In other words, that's part of the, I think, the, the key thing that's happening in Philemon, that Onesimus is a brother, Philemon. He's my heart. What you do to him, you're doing to me, Philemon. Now, you you know, I'm not coercing you, Philemon. I'm not telling you what to do. <laughs> but of course, if Philemon could continue to treat Onesimus as a slave after the letter that Paul writes, then of course, he's missed the whole notion, I think, you know, what, what the fellowship in Christ is about. His pr the primary thing here, it's there in Philemon, it's here in Philippians, it's here in Ephesians. Jesus is the model to be imitated. Uh, James McClendon, in referring to this, he says, hence the dominant feature of Philippians 2, 5 to 11 has never been a heavenly descent myth, for it is not a passage about the pre-incarnate acts of God but one that juxtaposes Messiah Jesus' earthly vicissitudes with the vast claim of his lordship on earth. That is, how did Christ become Lord? Well, it is in and through this humility. It is in and through the self-emptying that he's Lord in heaven and over the nether world. that he's, you know, ascended to the heights and ascended to the depths. And so Christ's lordship is established through his suffering and death on the cross. We can imitate that. That is the pattern to be imitated. We can't empty ourselves of deity in some pre-incarnate state. And I think that's a misunderstanding, by the way, of, of you know the whole function here. The image of God, which he models, and which the first pair and their progeny failed to live up to, it's not some designated state, but it's a task set. Uh, this is McClendon. He, McClendon's actually quoting somebody here, and I didn't note who it was. He says, it's not an ontic level enjoyed, but an ideal to be realized. And so the path of servitude and suffering is the model of the divine image 
that is given to us that we are to imitate. This is what we, this is how we're disciples. And so I think, you know, this is the point with Gerard. Certainly this can go bad. We can be caught up in a wrong kind of, of imitation. And Paul is talking that way in chapter five, too. You know, don't have a kind of whoring acquisitiveness. That is, there is this imitation that we all are familiar with, a kind of consumptive desire that Paul equates with idolatry, 5.5. Five. Uh, he equates it with being deceived by empty words. He equates it with darkness, and he equates it with the things that are hidden and that are now exposed, you know, 5.14. And so the conclusion of the chapter in 5, I think it is a displacement of the mystery of sin's alienating violence, it's, you know, the, the hostility, through this mutual submission. There is a, a, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, and the two shall become one flesh. And of course, what he's describing is the love of Christ that we're imitating here, and he says this mystery is profound, but he says, I'm talking about Christ in the church. So this communion, this participation, this imitation in a singular body is the power of peace. It is the, the exposure, the counter to the lie of violence. My point, if you miss imitation, you're going to misread Philippians. You're going to misread Philippians chapter 2, but I'm afraid you're also going to misread much of Paul, the, the context or fabric of uh, in which Paul is working. Well, again, this is new to me, but as you're taking us around the, the contours of it, I'm just, I feel overwhelmed. But the first thing I that came to mind is that it's constantly accessible in the present. So you don't have to like pull out origin and flip, flip through origin or Tertullian or get sort of a, you know, build up a uh, reservoir of insights. Of course, that's something that you may need to do off and on, but pretty obvious. I'm speaking about just myself and my circle. It's pretty obvious on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment, there's that choice to step in into the present moment and uh, at least hold that in, in mind, how to imitate Christ. You know? Yeah, I think it. I think it's very concrete. You know, it struck me. It it doesn't seem like that idea is completely lost. I mean, though, in the 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 way I grew up, you hear hints of it. It's always, you know, and and even in in you know the broadest sort of Christian things that happen, like the wristbands that said "What would Jesus do?" You know, that were popular. I mean, there's there's sort of this thread of that that still persist in almost all denominations or Christian teachings or whatever at some level, but it seems to just be overwhelmed, you know, by a, a, a system that, that posits God as, you know, needing to punish us for legal problems instead of, you know, the true salvation, it seems, and, and I don't think I'm saying this wrong, but, it, you know, God is saving us from something that that is an external threat to us that's not him it's death or it's you know these powers you know it's it's like we haven't quite lost that idea but we've just so dissociated it from what we're actually being saved from that it's irrelevant except as 
just some sort of pious thing to do, but it's not really the means of salvation. Yeah, well put, well put. I don't, I don't know, Paul, where everybody else is, but um, this was a hurdle for me to overcome, um, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, because um, what you're talking about or what you're pushing against is what a lot of, um, those are the waters that most of Christianity that I've been around has been swimming in. But what, what's fascinating is, is that once we understand, like if you talk about what does it mean, you could say it another way, what does it mean to be in Christ? Imitation, right? What's fascinating for me, and, and I, I think what opened up my eyes is when I started reading N.T. Wright, uh, to the, the challenge was is that all of a sudden I had to reread the Bible again because all of a sudden the whole book began to change of sorts and actually not so much change but like made a lot of sense like there were just passages like okay I know in the New Testament you know he talks you know Jesus might say hey uh, you guys need to do this I'd, you know, I'd always, you know, well, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, right? That's still under the law, but, you know, now we can move, we can move forward. So, yeah. So, so I think once you get what you're saying is, is it really changes the whole scope of the Bible. I think so. Yeah. I think that a lot of us have been trained that way. Oh yeah. You don't really, the Sermon on the Mount, that doesn't really apply to us. That's, that's old covenant. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that um, all of us. I think that um, Dave's spot on. I, I think that, um, that that I think it was John that was talking. Uh, he's you know that we've all had to pass through uh, these waters. Someone said it nicely a little bit ago, and they're dangerous waters, you know. And I think that uh, a lot of you know a lot of people's uh, faith has been shipwrecked, you know, to continue on with the with the metaphor, you know? Um, and what that means to me is that that shipwreck is that like, well, you just stop moving forward. Maybe you just sink. But what we're describing is a, is an infinite movement into the life of God, into the, into the life of the Holy Trinity that requires more than I think that what I, you know, what I'm usually willing to give, you, you know what I mean? But it requires, um, more than just like agreement intellectually and that's that's kind of a big deal right because we're we live in such um opinionated and sort of ideological you know an ideological driven culture um that we think that if we if we just believe the right things that we're on the right side but i and i believe that for years well as long as you have these doctrines and you kind of assent to them that you're safe with that by that through that knowledge you know, and, and whether or not that's a form of Gnosticism is maybe a, t a topic for another time. But what I do think that we're talking about is actually trying to become, like when I hear this language of imitation, man, it's a tall order to, to tell me, a sinner, you know, what your vocation is, is to become like our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you guys will do greater works than, than I'm doing. How's that possible? I guess it's only through what Paul just said that were his body throughout the 2000 years of the church that we're able to perform these mighty deeds, not through the imposition of our will or through a worldly power, 
but through love uh, and peace um, and sacrifice. And in other words, all those things require doing stuff. <laughs> you know, it's like when you were doing the passage from Philippians, it's like, man, Jesus, you know, he became fully human. Uh, maybe he's always been fully human. I think that he has, you know, but from our perspective, our linear perspective, you know, Jesus became fully human and he was fully divine. And that's what he's calling us to is to become fully human and, you know, fully divine by participation. Uh, but that's going to require living and moving and being in the world, in the body, in a radically different way than how I lived before I was baptized. You know, I mean, it's just, it's an eth it's a, it's a, it's something that you really have to, you know, it requires prayer, uh, you know, fasting, uh, service, you know, all these different things, right? The, the, um, the, you know, baptism, uh, communion, um, confession, all these things that we do with the body. And I think that that's in large part been, been lost, I think, to, to our, sort of late modern American religious sensibilities that th this requires like a, a different way of living in the world. You know, you, you can't look at porn anymore. You can't, you know, you, you can't do the things that you, that, that, you know what I mean? It's like, you, you can't get drunk. These like these little, these things that he says, it's like, well, don't, don't get drunk anymore. In other words, these things are important presumably because they cut us off from participation in the life of the Holy Trinity, they cut us off from theosis. And so we might have it all worked out, you know, um, in sort of a rational sense in a way that we think, you know, is right. But if we're not becoming righteous, that's what John says in his letter, you know, that we must walk as he walked. That's, that's such a crazy verse, right? Like that we have to, you know, walk as he walked that's what Christianity is all about, you know, to me now. And I think that it's such a radically, it's such a radical religion, you know, or it's such a radical way to be in the world. I, I think it's really attractive in that regard. Like I, I'm really blown away when I meet someone and they're, they're just, they're different. Not in the, you know, they're just different in the way that they live in the way that they carry themselves in the way that they pray and the things that they, you know, the way that they speak, you know what I mean? It's, it's a different, it should be something that you could kind of notice probably. Like if you just hang out with someone for a little bit, they're like, man, there's something different about this dude. <laughs> you know, he's got his, he's got some different uh, way of living in the world. And I think that that's really attractive to people that they'll start going, what is it? What's so you don't, you don't party or just whatever it is. You, you know what I mean? It's like, well, what's, what's tell, what, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll have an opportunity to kind of talk to them about some, some deeper things. So anyways, I'm probably just rambling. I'm on a, I'm, I'm a hopped up on Claritin and flow names, you know, <laughs> you're um, our model, Matt. So we, we want, <laughs> we're going to imitate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's way, I, I will say this. It's way harder. It's a way, it's a much more difficult way. Um, you know, the ascetics and the people who said, okay, I'm just going to, you know, we have this little thing uh, in the liturgy. It's just almost like this throwaway line. But we say it every time. It's like, you know, unto you, loving master, we commit our whole life and hope. That's such a profound statement. It's like, 
it, we're putting all of our chips on this thing. You, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it, it, it's such a profound way, I think, to, to kind of live in the world. I feel a little relief in a sense, in that I'm afraid that the way that, you know, faith is often pictured, it's actually something very intangible and hard to get a handle on. You know, it's hard to, what you know, I just believe this stuff and, you know, I got to believe it real, you know, real intensely. And what if I don't, you know, some days I don't believe intensely enough. No, what we're talking about is a practice, a set of practices. I came across Thomas Akempis, is that the way you say his name? The Imitation of Christ. I, I, sh I should have his opening line from that. But Thomas Akempis, this is his opening paragraph for this long treatise, you know, on, oh, the whole point is, you know, this is why I study Christ. Go back to your Life of Christ class, you know, in seminary. Why did you study the life of Christ? Well, you see, we had to harmonize the Gospels because we had to figure out, you know, how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and how does that fit with John? Oh, John, you no, Thomas Akempis says we study the life of Christ because we're imitating Christ. And that, what an impetus, you know, that, that gives you a whole different motive, you know, a whole different impetus that here is a concrete, here's the example we're to follow. So not to deny the difficulty of it, but, you know, any child can imitate. And I think that's what we're called to. Just imitate. Just do what I do. Just walk as I walk. You know, I can do that. I can take a step in that direction. This manner of life is one that is laid out for us. And so... There may be, I'm not saying it, it's not difficult, but it, but I think in other ways it is made easy that, that here's something I can do. Here's something concrete. Uh, and it's not a mere abstraction. And even when you don't do it, you know, that there's, a, there's forgiveness and mercy and confession and repentance. And uh, you, you know what I mean? It's a... Uh, but isn't that whether whether Luther was right or wrong? Clearly, the judgment seems to be: Did you live like Jesus Christ? Whatever we do with justification, it's like well, it, it seems to be that the criteria for salvation is: uh, You know, did you become as human as you could possibly become? Did you become as divine as you possibly could, you know could become? Did you do the things that Jesus did? Did you imitate? Did you imitate the love of Christ? That's it. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I sort of feel like I've been taken to a different view or angle, been given a different perspective. So the idea of community is making more sense. And the idea of uh, the Holy Spirit is making more sense. The word is too small, but I'll use it anyway. Resources, you know, it's not all, all totally up to us. That's right. Yeah. I mean, that's the conversation that we're going to have with um, Jordan, Daniel Wood, right? Is that we normally, I'm sorry if I'm talking too much, but we normally would split, you know, faith and works, you know, the human and the divine. We would keep doing the and, and you know, creation and salvation and all this stuff, you know. Um, but it sounds like, Paul, what, you, what you're trying to say through all this is that 
whatever that dualism is, whatever that, you know, I like the way you said it earlier class that that the, the wall of separation, the law, it's been, you know, it's, it's been demolished. It's, there is no and, you know, so there, it's not like, Oh, faith. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that it, it really is all grace, you know, that we really are saved by grace because there isn't, there isn't like a partition where it's like there's imitation of Christ over here and then there's faith over That's right. there. That's right. You know, it's they're not two different things. It's all great. It's already grace. You, to be a human being is already grace. You're already sharing in the life of Christ just by virtue of being alive and, you know, sharing in the being. So you're already on the, you know, you're already graced. So to imagine that you have to introduce this wall, uh, which is the law. And partition those two things off as if, you know, one lived in one realm and the other lives in another realm is to misunderstand, I think, everything that you've been trying to do in this class. And that is to say that the message of Ephesians is one of unity and that Christ is all in all, that God is filling himself with all things. And so that's just the path that we're supposed to walk. That's how we're justified. That's how we become righteous is by imitating doing the things that Jesus did, walking in grace and in wisdom, um, not so that we're saved, but because we are, but because we're saved. The, the term salvation, I think once we get a practical view of it, that, that this imitation is salvation. In other words, the, the, the process is salvific. And, uh, and the, the, the point is no longer, oh, I'm, going, I'm missing hell and going to heaven. The point right. is this, as Jim pointed out, Oh, no, this is the life that is given to us in God, the Holy Spirit. Uh, and this is, you know, the, the, the means of entering into this life. Let me, let me say one thing, Jonathan, you brought up the little bracelets. And I, I think that was, was that Sidney Sheldon, that book? It was a hugely popular book. And then later, you know, we got the the bracelets and things. And I don't mean to be hypercritical here. I, and, and I think that was mainly that's mainly a good thing. You know, what would Jesus do? But that's not exactly what we've described tonight, is it? That is, it's not a matter of decisionism. Oh, I've entered into this situation. Now what do I do? But I, I think that, in fact, we already know what Jesus did. And so the imitation is a bigger category. It's a more all-inclusive category that, in fact, takes us away from that kind of uh, individualistic decisionism. And I don't mean to be hypercritical because I, I think there was, a, there was a good spirit that was connected to that. But I think that book and that movement was so popular, maybe partly because what I'm describing uh, was so obscured, uh, you know, for so long that, oh, we we do. That is the idea, that here is the model, and we just have to imitate the model. And when I see, you know, I look around, I see the model all around me. When I see you all, uh, it, it's obviously when, when somebody's modeling Christ, oh, I'll just do that too. That's something I can imitate. And that's the way Paul's talking. That's the way, you know, Paul talks about Timothy. Uh, that the evangelists he's leaving, you know, imitate them, that this imitation is uh, the, the mode of discipleship. And it's not just the mode. 
It is. You already said it earlier. It is. I mean, just speaking as someone who, you know, used to not walk in the way and still sometimes doesn't. Like, again, we don't, there's no need to partition it off. Um, the way of Jesus is salvation, right? And, you know, it's, it's not, it's not, um, you know, sort of it's in, in its fulfilled sense, but uh, it's, it's, it's happening. It's here. The kingdom, the kingdom has come. Here is the model that we can follow. Gerard does give us a good picture of the alternative. Unfortunately, I think we're more familiar with Gerard's uh, mimetic rivalry and mimetic, you know, a desire that gives rise to violence and rivalry because that we're just sort of, that is the culture in which we're surrounded. And we're all familiar with what it's like to get caught up in that. It's all, it's nearly irresistible. I mean, I think it is irresistible. And I think that's the way that Paul is describing. That is, the, the danger is that we'll choose to be imitators of the wrong model. And I think that there is then the resolution to this problem before it begins, or at least the cure to the problem that we're surrounded by. Uh, and, you know, Paul will also talk about the false teachers and that, you know, these kind of false apostles uh, in, in language that sounds very Girardian in, in, in many senses. But I, I'm afraid that, that, that limiting the conversation to Girard's mimesis may miss the fact, oh, no, that this is a much more, this is a larger and more positive category and was a... Uh, uh, I think it's an original, it, there's an originary element to it in the Genesis narrative there in the, in the way that the image, the, the very, our very anthropology, you know, what it means to be human is caught up in this notion of imitation that is so central. Yeah. And it's incarnational. I mean, that's what, you know, Jesus was imitating the father. That's at the heart of the, of the incarnation, right? Is that, uh, you know, we can, we become what we imitate. So we become, we can become like the idol. We can become like nothing. That's what we usually do is we love nothingness instead of being, but Jesus loves and imitates the father and, you know, calls us into that same participation, but we have a more original. I think your, your point is, is there's a more original and, and actually a, a real, uh, the thing that, that Gerard is describing is, is a lie. It's a total sort of fiction but that in Christ we actually really can become, in other words, like what Gerard seems to be describing is that you, you're becoming less and less. You're becoming until you're just nothing. You're, you're, um, you, you're kind of like the mirror image of, of nothingness or of the idol. Uh, you, everybody looks exactly the same. Everyone's caught up in a mimetic rivalry of, um, you know, sin and hatred and death. Whereas with the imitation of Christ, you get like this infinite sort of, um, you know, difference and complexity. That's yes, uh, yes, that's beauty. good. It's it's a sort of a it's a kind of a form of a beauty. Whereas what whatever Gerard's describing is like a sort of uh, ugly ugliness. Yeah, it's Gerard's description. He, you know, he says two guys punching each other are indiscernible from one another. That is, two people caught up in mimetic rivalry, two people caught up in violence. Uh, they're identical that we reduce ourselves and that's the you know that's the the boring part of evil is that evil reduces to sameness 
And so, yeah, I, I like that, that no, what we're describing is a point, you know, th this is something we all know about uh, learning a skill. Uh, I just watched a whole documentary about a guy. He went to Japan and apprenticed himself to a bonsai master in Japan. I don't know if, if any of you, Jim is probably familiar. If you ever get the opportunity to become an apprentice to someone in Japan, don't take it. <laughs> uh, it is, I mean, it is brutal that the master in Japan, you know, just this guy, you know, even this American guy, he slap him around, you know, this is just part, you know, you're that you're treated like dirt. And the master never says a, a kind word an encouraging word just says you are, you know, just every day just tears him down until he just, you know, he just has a complete, and of course, most of the guy's disciples leave him. And so by the end, you know, the true bonsai masters in Japan, there's just a few people that have been, been able to endure the apprenticeship. But of course, at the end, and, and the thing that he realized had been, you know, when, the, when he would imitate his master, and master's the right word, because, you know, that's the, the, the word in Japanese. That when when he would imitate him, he just thought that was garbage. He says, "You have you haven't learned anything yet." That is a, a a pure simple repetition. And what he what he comes back to, he comes to the United States, and he's now one of the preeminent you know teachers of bonsai. But he breaks all the rules. He's doing bonsai in a way that no Japanese would ever do it. And, of course, that's the case with each of these bonsai masters. They are discipled, but then they move on to a, a kind of creativity that was only enabled in and through that, that mastery. Well, that's hmm. true of any kind of apprenticeship. You know, you learn the basics, you learn the skills, not so that you just endlessly are repeating the same thing over and over, but on that basis, learning that deep grammar allows you for a, a kind of creativity that otherwise you could not have. That's what you're describing, Matt. That, yeah, we, we actually enter into what it means to be, you know, an individual or to be fully personal. Imitation is, is just what it means to be human. Imitation, though, does not just have to end in pure repetition. But imitation then allows you to launch out into a form of creativity uh, on the basis of the master. You know what the what have you what have you learned from Jesus? Jesus says you shall do greater things than these. I think he meant that. I think that that actually in and through his disciples, in and through the church, that this is going to be a world movement uh, that that is going to be taken in places that he did not take it. Brent, I'm, I'm a little curious that coming into this kind of new as you are, I, I can just see you sitting there thinking, well, of course this is the case. Uh, this is so obvious that it does not need to be said. I, I hate to say that, uh, yeah, that's the way I feel. <laughs> uh. <laughs> In other words, I think this is obvious. Uh, if you've been indoctrinated, 
into nearly any form of Christianity, what I've just said may not be so obvious. So it's almost like we're trying to get back to, uh, in, in a way, it should be obvious, and somebody just picking up, you know. But I'm afraid that we've been we've been turned away from this most obvious thing to something quite different. And and it it may be a very subtle thing that you don't notice. You know, you kind of lose because it's sort of like the the forest. It's just in the New Testament, this is kind of everything. And those of us who have unfortunately been inundated with a kind of Lutheran, Protestant, evangelical understanding, that it's so much over and against a kind of works righteousness, a kind of misdefinition of faith. This most basic thing, I'm afraid, has been lost. But I was, as I was saying all this, I thought, yeah, but Brent doesn't have that problem. <laughs> as you say, don't get me wrong, it, it's still, I, there's still things to unwind as I see it has worked its way down through culture to me. Um, maybe especially being in a more rural uh, location too. just going to say that I, I, I was just remembering that I was so bad off that whenever I was first introduced to Paul and he was saying a very similar thing in about 2007, I remember thinking, is this guy a heretic? This can't be, this can't, this doesn't, I mean, it was that far out. Like it was that far fat. It was such a different um, thing for me coming from that, you know, sort of more of a reformed background that I was like, this, this is so different than what I've inherited that it just, it seems suspicious. I mean, and it, and it took me probably 10 years you know, um, with Paul's help and with your, you know, with, with people like you, you know, to kind of climb out of that. So, th you know, we got to be gracious with people, you, you know, because they're, they, they don't, most people don't even really know, you know, what, what they've inherited and you don't know what you don't know. Right. Like yeah. you, 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 someone has to show you, you know, it's, it's the old allegory of the cave, you know, Plato's allegory of the cave. It's like, somebody's got to say, Hey, those, you know, what you think is real isn't real at all. Let me show, let me take you by the hand and show you. Let me lead you up out of the cave so that you can see there's a, it's not that there's a sun, you know, uh, out here. There's like a, it's not a mirage. I just thank God for, I thank God for you, Paul, and, and for you guys uh, for taking this journey with me because there's a lot of people I think that this is shocking when they hear it. I mean, it's just shocking. And they, they think that everything that I've thought uh, is wrong. It's, it's going to be kind of painful. I remember it being painful. I remember just going back to my dorm and not being able to sleep at night and going, man, I, I legit think that I've been wrong about stuff like violence being okay, you know, and um, nationalism being part of what it means to be a Christian and uh, justification by faith alone and, and all this stuff. Like it, it's an existential sort of crisis. If you really are coming from that where you need to be converted, you, you know what I mean? So that's why I support, you know, I support this ministry uh, and, and just what, what Paul is doing because it's just kind of saved my, my life and really helped me to, um, to kind of dig out of what I now know. It was like a, 
it was kind of like a pit. And but, I think your experience is not unusual. And uh, I don't mean to paint. I hope we're not painting too dark a picture, Brent. But all we've done, all we've really done, and I just described the simple gospel. It, it is very simple. There's nothing. And yet that simple gospel is an offense. It is a scandal, I think, to many people who have, in fact, been indoctrinated and culturated in a different understanding. So I, I think it's really good news. All right. I appreciate you guys and good, good conversation. We are now moving on to Unit 6. We've got three weeks left. We'll see you next week. Night. Good night. Good night. Good night, guys. God bless. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares, or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.